to the Liquid Assets edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And, oh my God, what a show do we have. We have a show about water. That That's coming up later. We're going to talk about a certain large East Coast institution with tens of billions of dollars who's buying up land in California, ostensibly for agriculture, but we suspect that really because they're trying to corner the market in water, which seems dastardly. <laughs> um, we are going to talk about a different kind of liquid asset, stocks. If you are a shareholder right now in Uber or Lyft or Slack or one of those multi-billion dollar unicorns, you can't really sell your shares very easily. But if they're listed on the stock market, then you can. So that might be happening pretty early on in 2019, we think, perhaps. Are we excited about this, Emily? Nah. Meh. So um, let's start with the huge international geopolitical news of the week. There have been arrests. There have been disappearing diplomats. There has been international intrigue. There has been presidential, what's the word, interference in the Justice Department, not for the first time. Um, we have a story of high diplomatic stakes coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. OK, Anna Shemansky. Yes. Who is Sabrina Meng? So, Meng Wanzhou. <laughs> or Meng Wanzhou, yes. as she is also known. Yes. She is the CFO and also daughter of the founder of Huawei, the giant, the giant Chinese telecom company and the largest provider of telecom equipment in the world. We have talked about Huawei before on this show, mostly in the context of national security, because various Five Eyes governments like the United States and Australia and New Zealand have essentially banned Huawei from bidding on building out 5G networks and that kind of thing because they're worried that it will allow the Chinese government to spy on all of us. Um, but that's not actually 
why she is in the news. No, although you could argue it is related (laughs) in the sense that she was arrested in Canada um, for potential extradition to the United States for violations of sanctions involving Iran. What appears to have happened or what is being claimed is that um, Huawei created this other company called Skycorp that they were using to try to get around um, the U.S. sanctions against Iran. Skycorp. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like something out of Terminator. It and, really does. And yeah, there were people with who worked at Skycom who literally had the Huawei logo on their business cards. <laughs> it, it, seem, it seems like it was a relatively um, transparent attempt to get around the U.S. sanctions. And of course, Chinese companies, not just Chinese companies, also Swiss companies and French companies and lots of companies feel that if they're not American, why should they need to abide by American sanctions on Iran? And so because they were using American parts. <laughs> I mean, they were very, a, yeah. This is, this is a longstanding gripe that basically if any other country in the world put, put sanctions on Iran, that doesn't stop most companies from dealing with Iran. But if America puts sanctions on Iran, then the entire world has to stop dealing with Iran. I mean, if you want the sanctions to be effective, everyone has to play the game. If it's just America doing the sanctions, it's not. Right. Not but America has sanction. the ability to, to sort of export those it. sanctions to the rest of yes. the world. And it will criminally prosecute people from anywhere in the world who violate those sanctions. The only problem is the only problem is it can't extradite people who are charged with sanctions busting because it's not a crime in Canada, say, to um, violate these sanctions. So what they did was they came up with this idea that Sabrina Meng had committed fraud because she had a meeting with HSBC. And in that meeting, she showed them a PowerPoint presentation. And in that PowerPoint presentation, she said that Skycom and Huawei were two different companies. And the idea is that this was a fraudulent statement and fraud is an extraditable criminal offense. It. What do you make of this strategy, Anna? Well, it's what I do think is interesting is to think of it in light of what's going on with the trade negotiations. Because even though the U.S. originally came out and said, well, these are completely separate things. These have nothing to do with each other. I think, A, most people always kind of thought that was a little bit of nonsense considering the timing. And then when... Trump came out and explicitly said, oh, well, basically, I'll use her as a bargaining chip, became very clear that these are somewhat related. And the question does arise. We all know that a lot of companies engage in practices that are in violation of U.S. sanctions. Do we prosecute all of them? Would we have prosecuted? Do we arrest their senior executives when they're like changing plans in Vancouver? Exactly. Yeah. And the answer is most. Uh, Emily Emily is shaking her head and saying. No, we no. don't typically arrest is executives, even when they're changing planes in Vancouver. Um, so it, it does seem like this is just I mean, it's really turned out to be the trade war of of Trump's dreams. Almost there's so much intrigue to talk about. There's arrest, just like Felix was saying in the introduction. This is really does seem and, like and, all of a piece. You couldn't you can't make it up. View like it in its, in a isolation. novelist couldn't make up the yeah. timing of it. Right. The, the arrest warrant went out on August the 22nd, but she was actually arrested on December the 1st, which was the exact day that Trump and she had their dinner in Buenos Aires and they shook hands and said, yes, we're going to do a deal. And then literally the minute that the news of this arrest came out, China was furious and took this effectively as a declaration of trade war and immediately retaliated by as far as we can make out, disappearing a couple of like former Canadian diplomats and no yeah, one knows yeah. what's happened to them. It's well, kind of bad. No, it will, I mean, it's, it's quite bad. And I, I think it's 
interesting and probably somewhat important that they initially are targeting Canada. And there's also a lot of people who say in China, they're actually trying to kind of tamp down the anti-American rhetoric. And I think that this makes a lot of sense when considering the entire trade war that we're dealing with right now is that China already is and is going to have to not essentially capitulate, but give in quite a bit more because they are in a much weaker position. And they don't want to really publicize that. They don't want to make it any more evident than it already is that they are in a weaker position and that they are going to have to give into a lot of U.S. demands. So Which brings looks, us to the know. the conclusion, the troubling conclusion, depending on your perspective, that Trump may actually be winning the so, trade war he started. <laughs> so, is that accurate? Well, I mean, we I already think... have a headline, right, which says that the Chinese have agreed to reduce tariffs on American cars mm-hmm. to 15%. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, what's probably a little bit more interesting is what they're doing in terms of the Made in China 2025 mm-hmm. and kind of pulling back on the local content requirements and a number of other measures. And I, I think this is interesting if you think of the short term and long term. Because short term, this almost... this almost certainly is going to appear to be a win for Trump. But I think that that's really not looking at what's actually happening long term. Because right now, China is, especially a lot of the businesses that China's really, really trying to grow are very, very dependent on U.S. parts. What we saw happen with ZTE. And also there are a lot of issues right now going on in the Chinese economy, which we can get more into. But the point of this is that right now, China is going to at least have to say that they're pulling back. They're going to have to say that they're going to start buying soybeans again and going to reduce these tariffs. However, I think long term, if you look at this, all we're doing is making it far more evident why China should become self-sufficient and they shouldn't be reliant on U.S. products because they right now that they don't want to have to be in this position again in the future. So I don't think long term this makes a tremendous amount of sense. What you're saying is interesting to me because it sounds a little bit like the ancient Brazilian policy of import substitution. It's, it's like China is big enough that we can be self-sufficient and we don't need to rely on America. And in this kind of globalized world of global supply chains, no country is that big. The United States is not that big. In the long term, surely we're all going to wind up in this glorious utopia along the lines of what the EU just agreed with Japan, which is, you know, essentially no tariffs between anyone on anything. And I I agree with that in theory. Yes, we we hope that that's where eventually everything will lead. This was one of the most disturbing things about the Made in China 2025. It's not just that they want to be strong in these industries. There's no reason any country shouldn't want to be strong in advanced manufacturing. It's that if you really looked at the details, a lot of it was the idea of actually having numerical requirements on local content, saying, like, you know, 70 percent has to be from Chinese manufacturers, really trying to make it so that China could essentially be self-sufficient as much as you can be. And that was concerning to a lot of other countries. It, it's interesting to me because in, in a way that um, the China 2025 and this notion that they should become more self-reliant is very, very nationalistic kind of notion. And coming up against the Trump administration, where Trump sort of has the same kind of worldview, very nationalistic, wants America to, you know, uh, be great again, totally rely on its own trade is bad, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that those two countries clashing against each other, both sort of wanting, in a way, a similar kind of thing and realizing in the end, that's just not the way the world works anymore. We're all intertwined. Just give it up. Well, I mean, and this is what, you know, Obama was trying to do with TPP was this idea of, you know, he was also obviously like every president, very concerned with a lot of the practices China was engaging in. Mm-hmm. But kind of the idea was like, well, let's really make the world order uh, like the kind of trade world order more robust. Let's make the rules based order more robust. 
And that would be the kind of way to fend this off. It's not because we want every country to just, you know, become their little island, which is essentially impossible and would just impoverish the world, Mm -hmm. but that we want to make sure that China isn't benefiting from a system while breaking all the rules. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Emily. Hi. Do you ever wish that you worked at the SEC? Sometimes a little bit. Because I drift off to bed, I dream of it. You dream of it because you know what you get when you work at the SEC? You get to see the IPO filings for these huge companies like Uber and Lyft before anyone else. Because Mm -hmm. now... Even multi-billion dollar companies like Uber, it used to be like this little thing just for smaller companies. Now any company, even a huge company like Uber, can do this thing called a confidential filing where they basically hand over their entire S1, their entire um, draft prospectus to the SEC. They don't need to show it to anyone else. And then the, they, they, the SEC will go back and forth and say, yeah, we don't think that metric makes a lot of sense. And... Then eventually they can make the public filing just a couple of weeks before they go public and they don't need to look like there's a whole chaotic mess with the SEC when, you know, they can do it all in secret. So there's now people in the SEC who are doing this. They're looking over all of the financials of Uber and Lyft and possibly Slack and they're saying, you know, does this make sense? And then eventually, they're saying, wow, they lose a lot of money. <laughs> and they're saying, wow, they lose a lot of money. And then eventually we, all of us, get to read those filings and say, wow, they lo- lose a lot of money. We should buy shares in these companies. <laughs> but eventually. <laughs> but an opportunity. Yes. So is this is this the, the what, what Matt Levine would call like the, the, the great exodus of unicorns from the enchanted forest are we finally reaching that point where the ipos are going to happen it really looks like that so i think it was last week we heard that both uber and lyft had filed their confidential um s1s at the sec and also we're talking about possible ipos of slack airbnb um and maybe postmates i think in 2019 so it's sort of even we work you never know you never know so it's like all these um these uh sharing economy companies that started popping up after the recession are finally they're going for it now as you know the market maybe is headed for some kind of who knows what's going to happen but 2019 looks like it's going to be the their coming out party and the weird thing is that all of these filings and all of this sort of full steam ahead into stock market listings and this whole talk about 2019 being a banner year for ipos is happening in the context of what looks on its face to be a really kind of nasty stock market. Mm-hmm. But I, I think those things are connected. I mean, I think part of the reason you're trying to, uh, you're having a lot of companies now trying to IPO even a little earlier is because they want to kind of get in before things really start to go bad, but before credit really starts to get um, kind of harder to access. So I think that. So wait, wait your credit or? Well, I actually, they're connected because I, the point is that if you're having increased rates and you're having, so you're going to have a little bit less credit in the system, you're going to have less money sloshing around the system, you're going to have the ability to get higher returns in safer 
investments. So you may have less money going into VC firms. It's all it's all connected in terms of the appetite people might have then in two ways. One, for actually like buying on some of these riskier new issuances. And two, actually wanting to fund in the private sector these riskier firms. So here's here's my question is like does it matter um at what valuation these companies go public if they manage to jump in an IPO early in the year before things really seize up and they get a slightly higher valuation that way on like day one of trading there's going to be a six month lockup for you know most of the shareholders why what who benefits from that because I don't think anyone I mean assuming they don't raise billions of dollars in the actual IPO itself um What's what's the benefit of going earlier rather than waiting a little bit and just going a bit later, maybe at a slightly lower price? Well, if you're Lyft, I think it probably makes a little bit more sense because part of IPO, besides the, obviously just like raising capital and increasing liquidity, you're you're getting a lot of buzz around your company. And Uber doesn't really need more buzz. If anything, they need less name recognition. <laughs> but you know, Lyft kind of does. Lyft is like the other rand, and I think. It can make sense for them to, if they really do want to get on the higher end of the potential for their share price, to come out early so people who want exposure to ride-hailing in the gig economy might be more apt to take part. So one of the interesting stories, sort of subplots in this whole story, is this idea that certain companies, including Slack um, and possibly Airbnb, um, are talking about doing what Spotify did and talking about doing a direct listing, which is not an IPO, and you just allow people to buy and sell their shares on the stock market, and that will give you a public share price and a bunch of liquidity, but it doesn't give you the initial jolt of cash that you get from the IPO. And and one of the reasons why people are saying that might not be a good idea for a company like Lyft is because it's a little bit quieter and therefore you don't get the sort of PR buzz that you get from an IPO. Right. And I also think if you're looking at the need for cash for some of these companies, because I mean, I think it's interesting if you look at like what happened in the last big tech bubble. I mean, part of the reason Amazon is still around is not only because they IPO'd obviously before the tech bubble crash, but also because they issued these like convertible bonds really soon before the tech bubble crash. So they had a lot of extra cash to sit on. I believe the issuance of those... Convertible bonds was more or less the cause of the, <laughs> the dot-com crash. Yes. But so I think if you're looking at these companies that do just burn through cash, and you know, they you know, they have cash positions, but if things really go south and they have a harder time accessing funding, like they're gonna need cash still around. Is this a sign then that things are going to go south? Like is this an indicator, all these companies wanting to IPO all at the same time? I think I think what I think the one thing you can generally say. The one thing you can say from the perspective of venture capital investors is they really like to IPO at a high valuation and a high multiple of whatever they bought in at. And looking forwards from here over the next two, three years, it's unlikely that the valuation that Uber or Lyft or Slack could get if they IPO tomorrow would be substantially lower than the valuation they could get in 2020 or 2021. So if you're going to IPO, you may as well do it now because you don't get paid to wait. Mm -hmm. And if anything, because you have so many analysts and economists looking at 2020 as being a potential recession, you're probably, you really do probably want to go into 2019. And do we think the IPO is going to be good for Uber? Like you said, they don't need the brand recognition anymore, but they do need 
something to signal like they have the new CEO, they have Dara, but they need something to signal like we're grown up now. We're for real. And do you think doing an IPO is really going to give people that signal, going to give people the impression that this is a mature company that's no longer like a little frat house, you know, I out think, there? I think it will. I mean, you do need to be relatively grown up and coherent in order to IPO a little, certainly more than the, you know, original Uber of Travis mm-hmm. Kalanick. Um, the other thing that the IPO will do is it will reveal that Uber is not just um, a big global ride-sharing company, but it also, because of various deals it's done over the years, is what my Axios colleague Dan Primack calls like an ETF for ride-hailing globally, because mm-hmm. it has these cross-shareholdings in like Didi Chuxing and, mm-hmm. very, and in Russia and Asia and places like that. So even if you don't love the what in what Uber does internally, and mm-hmm. even if you don't think that Uber Eats is going to be a multi-billion dollar franchise. And even if you're not really bought into Dara's management, what you can get if Uber IPOs, which you can't get right now, is just some kind of financial exposure to the asset class. And that's, I think, something that public market investors have been waiting for for a while. I also think it's important to think about what it could do for the company in terms of corporate governance and transparency. Mm-hmm. And that's where yes. I really do think the trend we have seen of not as many companies going public is not a good thing because it tends to create a lot of really, really bad corporate governance behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I know sometimes people think, well, but if you go public, then you're going to be involved. You're only interested in short-term profits. And there's actually very little evidence that that's the case, especially if you're talking about tech companies. They're, I mean, like, if you're an investor, that's the whole reason you're going into a tech company is for growth, not for profits immediately. So I think ultimately this could be a very good thing for these companies moving forward. So I I think we should talk about corporate governance a little bit more in Slate Plus because this idea that public companies are good at corporate governance I think is a really interesting one in the light of certain news that came out this week about CBS. (laughs) So let's talk about CBS in Slate Plus and ask ourselves, is it really true that corporate (laughs) governance works well at public companies? Also, Travis Kalanick is the third largest shareholder in Uber still. I didn't, I guess like I had blocked that out that he's still on the board and will make so much money when they IPO. But it's true. It's true. That'll be fair. He did start it. (laughs) He's a horrible person, but I'm just just saying like. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily. I'm drinking water right now, Felix. Yes. What are you drinking? I'm drinking um, some water out of a bottle that I purchased, which we can talk about the ethics of that. Is that that the original water that came in the (laughs) bottle or is it a refill from it? It is the original water from the bottle, I think, although sometimes you get scammed, you know, in the city. (laughs) I've been scammed by bottled water. Speaking of scams. Speaking of scams. No. um, So the news that we're about to talk about is this piece that came out in the Wall Street Journal this week about Harvard with its $39 billion endowment is um, buying up land in California that's wineries or orchards, um, but really doing it for the water rights underneath. 
Just to be clear. <laughs> to be clear. We don't actually know that they're just doing it for the water we, rights. That's but, fair. But, but on the other hand, it would be a bit weird if they suddenly decided that like, what they really wanted to be was like a grape wholesaler. It, it is a, de- a debatable point that maybe at first they were doing it to get into agriculture investing. But since then, it's clear that what makes this land valuable that Harvard um, Harvard's wholly owned subsidiary bought is that it's sitting on relatively um, deep aquifers. Deep, thank you, deep aquifers um, in a, a state that is drought plagued. So the the Wall Street Journal had a nice map and it showed the pieces of land that Harvard owns, sort of green. Surrounded by other land that's sort of, you know, brown. yellowing and sad and brown. Um, and it's, I guess, since 2015 has tripled in value because because of where it sits on these aquifers. And because there was this big drought. And obviously, the one thing that goes up in value in a drought is water and water yeah. rights. And there is this incredibly long and convoluted history of politics and economics around water rights in California, which anyone who's seen Chinatown knows all about. And... A lot of the water in the Central Valley, which is where Harvard is buying up the land, there really is this idea that if you buy the land on top of the aquifer, then you own the water rights and you can do what you like with the water. And most countries and jurisdictions don't work that way, but it's the way it works in um, in California. And I know because I went on holiday once with a Californian rice farmer, which is one of the most insanely water-dependent crops you can possibly grow. And they were like, yeah, but we own our own aquifer. You know, it's our water. We can do what we like with it. Right. No, like, this water is precious. And there are these huge cities in California and you need to look after your people first. And they're like, no, we're going to just, you know, kill our rice every year by covering it in water and allowing it to rot. I think we're going to see water becoming a a bigger and bigger and bigger issue as climate change is now upon us. And... um, the report the the federal government put out on Black Friday warned of upcoming scarcity. So I think fights over public and private use of water and aquifers is really going to become a very, very big and, and important issue. And it's coming at a time um, when there's also other things going on with regards to contamination. Um, and, you know, there's um, the Trump administration rolling back. Um, some of the Obama protections for clean water. At the same time, there's, you know, private companies buying up water rights, um, it just seems like we're building towards an inevitable kind of clash over a very basic, some would argue, a human, something that we have a human right to, which is the water in the, on the land we live in. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, when you're talking about the history of water rights in the United States, it is kind of interesting. And, you know, up until not that long ago, in a lot of areas, most people really didn't pay for water. It, or you would pay kind of like fees and such, but you wouldn't pay for usage. In, the United, in, in New York City, I think it wasn't until like the 1970s that we actually started to pay for usage. And then at a certain point, like just nobody was paying their water bill, but no, they wouldn't, no one wanted to ever cut off people from water because mm-hmm. that seems kind of horrible. Now more people pay their water bill. But still, we have a sense in both consumers and in industry, this idea that water is not free because people know you pay for it, but like that it's it's close to free and it, it's so plentiful and so abundant and it's never going to run out. And I think Unfortunately, because we've always structured policies to a certain extent around that, we don't have the great the greatest water use policies. And although mm-hmm. I think most people would recognize that all humans should have the right to enough water to live on. I mean, I think that, it, you know, that's, a, I think, a pretty reasonable idea. That doesn't mean that everyone has the right to as much water as they can possibly use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and I think that's that's absolutely key. You need to. And what we've seen most extremely in Cape Town is this idea that. 
we are all in this together and that people are going to need to cut back on their own personal water consumption and in order for everyone to have access to water. What's interesting about California is that it's not a question of individuals watering their lawns, which is the problem, or people washing their cars or people spending too long in the shower or anything like that. The vast majority of water use in California is in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so then what you get is this big trade-off. It's like, it's it's easy on one hand to say, well, people should come first and let the people, you know, use as much water as they like before we start spending it all on almonds um, but or cows, which are even thirstier. Um, but on the other hand, you know, people need to eat. You need to grow that food somewhere. And the number of areas on the planet which have enough water to be able to grow crops and beef and almonds and soy and everything else in abundance is shrinking. And at some point, you do need to make that trade-off because although we need water, we need food too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's why um, a story like the the Harvard story is so you you find it so outrageous because it's not about agriculture. I mean, those grapes aren't being grown to to, to feed people; these are for wine. I, well, wine is uh, even more important <laughs> than food. Um, and you see companies like Nestle getting into trouble. I did a story a few years ago that Nestle um, was taking water out of public land in California during a drought to make bottled water and then sell it wherever. And you, you just like instinctively know like that's not that's not something you can argue in defense of. And I think um, things like that happen a lot. Like Michigan, I think is uh, not Michigan. Yes, Michigan also lets Nestle yeah. take water out of the Great Lakes, and and it's coming at a time when this Flint still doesn't have clean water. Blah blah blah. Like there are just some things that are so objectionable that for some reason are still going on that we need to cut out. I'm, as I'm we battle well, the one other of the issues. things which I'm very aware of is the. Um, amazing infrastructure that brings water to New York City. New York City is is um, unique in a bunch of ways. It's kind of, on some level, the only major city in the world, or one of just a tiny handful of major cities, major cities in the world, which does not have a water shortage. We have hugely abundant water because we have this massive watershed which goes all the way up through upstate New York and Vermont and places like that where no one lives. Um, and it all just flows down to New York City through this incredible series of aqueducts from the Catskills, which were built in Victorian times. And I spent a bunch of time... Uh, researching these aqueducts for really boring reasons. And basically, what they managed to do, like, a hundred and some years ago when they built this aqueduct, it would basically be impossible today. Like, the technology they had and the ability they had to just make these massive pipes bringing water down into New York City, I don't think they could do it now. I genuinely don't think they could do it now. And if they did, it would cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing what we, like what we are relying on and how we've lost certain technology, even as we've gained other technology. I mean, I think that's what makes the coming water scarcity issues all that more frightening, is because of this sort of decline in the ability to erect public infrastructure and to to solve problems on a mass scale. I don't see that well, happening anymore. I, I guess the hope is that if you really did get into a situation where this was necessary, that 
our advancements in actual technology could actually aid us. I mean, the reason that we can't do it is not because we don't have the technology to do it. It's because of a million other things that make well, it yeah, impossible. Yeah, I mean, so, including things like eminent domain. Right. Yeah, but I, I kind of, I'm very skeptical, actually, that, you know, Elon Musk is going to come along with a magical electric boring machine and solve all of your problems. <laughs> we'll agree with that. <laughs> Got to get Elon Musk into the Gotta conversation every time. And, and by the way, if you haven't read the amazing Charles <laughs> Duhigg story in Wired about like what it's like to work for Elon Musk over the past year, can highly recommend that. <laughs> That's on my list. Okay, let's have a numbers round. My number is three, which is the interest rate in percent that a brokerage called Robinhood decided that they were going to pay on checking accounts. They announced this thing on Thursday saying, we are offering free checking accounts and free savings accounts with no fees whatsoever, access to 84,000 ATMs all over the world, and you just put your money in it, and they all pay 3% interest compounding I'm, daily. I'm moving my money right now. Hang on. Um, yeah, mo- a lot of people signed up. Apparently, they got 100,000 people signing up in the first <laughs> two hours. Um the only problem is it's all kind of vaporware because they didn't check. Okay, f- the first little asterisk that people noticed was that these checking accounts were not FDIC insured because they're not a bank. <laughs> and then the second thing they noticed was like, they said, well, it's okay, you're still insured by the SIPC, the Securities and Investor Protection Corporation, um, up to $250,000. And then a couple of people like phoned up the SIPC and said, is this true? Is this insured? And the SIPC is, hell no. That And the, within about 24 hours of the announcement, the whole thing started wonderfully falling apart. But it kind of, oh it's God. this wonderful story of um, how things work in Silicon Valley. People like announce them, announce these things without really thinking them through. Mm-hmm. And then they, they didn't realize like how the world works. No, it's like movie pass. <laughs> yeah. That's scandalous. Scandalous. Um, Anna. My number is 90 meters per second, which is That's fast. It is fast. It's about 200 miles per hour. That this is now the fastest movement by any animal. This record has now been set by the Dracula ant, which a the Dracula ant is this ant's just a the jaw animal. or does it how fast so it it's moves? The, well, so it's it's just the jaw, it's just the mandibles. They like have this like like snapping movement like the way you snap <sighs> your fingers, but it's it's kind of fascinating. So it's like way faster than the trap jaw ant. So like and it's you know but it, <laughs> but it creates all of this energy and then that's the, what it kind of allows it to like stun predator or stun prey. And I thought it was kind of cool. And they've also thought like studying this can help in terms of developing, you know, engineering technology and I just thought it was pretty cool. So if it's a cool number. So Emily, when you're trying to get your kids to eat you just like, make like a Dracula. <laughs> I'm just, as long as I don't have to encounter it in my basement, whatever, it's fine. Sounds great. So what's your number? My number is kind of a bummer. It's $6.7 billion. That is apparently the cost we spend in America on loneliness, according to the sad WSJ feature. On, on, I'm um, setting up Loneliness Inc. Loneliness. Wait, where, where do we spend $6.7 exactly. billion dollars and it's how do I on, buy shares in it? It's on um, the aging baby boomers. Apparently a lot more of them are alone than previous generations. So we wound up um, wind up spending a lot more money taking care of them. So the $6.7 billion is how much Medica- Medicare spends on care for things for people who are socially isolated. So, you know, on like um, nursing facilities or hospitalization or things like that. Um, and it's the journal's done a lot of good work on the aging 
population and sort of what's going on with older Americans. Is that the UK? Doesn't, don't they also have like a department right now yes, working UK on loneliness? Yes, the UK has a department like, of loneliness. Yeah. And um, yeah, people are becoming increasingly more lonely. And I think it's sort of like a quiet health crisis that we don't talk yeah. about in that way. We Agreed. talk about it in other ways. And just like side note, because I was just having a conversation with my 94-year-old great aunt who was oh. telling me how she doesn't like to eat with in like part of the area because she says all the other people are so depressing. Because so many, it's, it was really sad because she was saying a lot of other people, she was saying like they don't, their families don't come to like visit them. And so they said they're just sad all the time. That and it was, it was, it was, a, it was very sad. There was one lady in the journal story who was like on Christmas, she pretends it's not Christmas because her family doesn't come to see her. Aww. So she like does little chores in the house. It's, um, Felix just looks horrified by all of this, but it was really sad. I agree. I'm yeah. horrified. It's horrifying. I'm horrified. Um, on which horrifying note. <laughs> We are going to wrap up this episode of Slate Money. Um, thank you very much for listening to us. We have a very special episode next week with Adam Fisher. We're going to do all manner of delving into the kind of Silicon Valley shenanigans we were just talking about with respect to Robin Hood. Um, do keep the emails coming. Slate Money at Slate.com. Many thanks to Max Jacobs producing this week if you're a slate plus member we're going to talk a little bit about cbs and otherwise we will talk to you next week on sleep money